Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. Well, in your Bibles, we're going to be in Genesis 3 tonight. And I have Genesis 4 ready, if we still get time. Um, but we'll, uh, we'll dig in and we'll do that. Uh, going back and reviewing real quick, Genesis 1 covers the first six days of creation. Uh, and as Zach already said, it covers this problem of God sees void and formlessness. And he creates creation as a response to form and formlessness. In Genesis 2, we have humanity, and it's humanity is created to be in relationship with God, or at least we can have a relationship with God. God gives these human beings free will and gives them a free choice. Uh, and there is this choice right in the middle of the garden that they have every day on if they'll follow and listen to God and be in relationship with him, or if they want to defy God and do something else. So the scene is set to innocent human beings not aware of evil. And for innocent human beings not aware of evil, they can often be very susceptible to the temptations that will come their way. So we have this kind of perfect state, and now we're going to have an intervening incident. What do they call that in literature writing? The inciting incident at the beginning that's going to take this plan of what our life should be like, which is where we ended last time, and now we're going to see what life is going to be like based on the fall. Um, I think it's tough to imagine what life would be like without that defiance against God somewhere around us. That idea that life can be without evil is something that's super hard for us to imagine. Um, but ultimately, the perfect state was to love life, love the work that you're given, the stewardship of the garden, and love God. Um, so we find ourselves in Genesis 3 in the, the middle of the first Toldoth. And remember, Genesis has 11 of these kind of family histories or mini books. And it's a compilation of these books that we believe Moses put together. So we're in the middle of what happened to Adam and Eve or this creation account. It's going to end in chapter 4, verse 26, as we see Seth um, getting there. There's a guy named Bob Davis. He calls Genesis chapter 3 the most important book of the entire Bible, or the most important chapter of the whole Bible, which is a bold statement. But essentially, we're going to see that we have this perfect state that we're supposed to have, and sin is going to enter the picture in chapter 3. And if we don't get a clear idea of what sin is and how it affects our lives, the rest of the Bible doesn't make a lot of sense. So I'm going to check that because it could be Bobby Joe. We should be praying for Bobby Joe this weekend. Let's pause and do that real quick. Uh, so with no further ado, we'll dig into it. Verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of the very every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden... God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. 
Then the serpent said to the woman, You won't surely die. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate it. Makes you feel dirty just reading it. Um, it's interesting. Remember we talked about being made in the image of God and in the likeness of God? And note that part of this temptation is we can fulfill the plan that God has for you by eating this fruit. You can be like God. And that is kind of part of this idea, but Satan is twisting this a little bit. I say Satan and I shouldn't because the word Satan hasn't been introduced yet in the Bible. All we have right now is serpent. Um, so let's start with verse 1 and then we'll keep working our way through. Uh, now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Okay, first a serpent here is a word for some sort of reptilian critter. Um, but it's clearly not what it is today for a couple of reasons. One, it's talking, and serpents today don't talk. So we have kind of a, 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 a thing here that we have to trust that this is what happened uh, and that serpents can talk. C.S. Lewis, who is not only a Bible scholar but a great writer, um, in some of his stories he wrote that animals could talk. And part of why he did that is because later on we have a donkey that talks, and here we have a serpent that talks. Uh, and there's really no reason why some animals can't make a lot of vocal intonations, but to actually have language capacity is a whole different kind of thing. Um, so the Bible says the serpent talked. Um, today we have serpents that are mostly on the ground. We have no idea what it had. Some people like to imagine the serpent had wings and could fly around. And most cultures around the world have mythologies that have serpents with wings. Um, so they don't always look like D&D dragons, but they're, they show up in ancient literature and are all over the place. There's also the idea that the serpent could have had legs, and we still have plenty of serpents on the planet today that have legs. So physiologically, um, we, we don't have the curse where they're squirming around on the ground, making them especially icky. Um, I want to get more into the, the what is said here and how Satan tempts and how he does it and what it looks like. So first Satan questions the word of God and, and notice the thing is, has God indeed said? And he's questioning, did God really say that? And did he really say those kinds of things? And not being rooted in the word, it's hard to answer that question. And it's one of the easiest ways Satan can get any one of us is if we don't know what the word says, then you can have people that say, well, Satan, this is really, I think the Bible says this, or this is really what God meant by that. Or that's contextualized in that sort of way. Notice the Bible also calls the serpent cunning. Uh, devious, crafty, clever is what that word means. Um, sin is always packaged to look pretty good. Like there's nothing about this that that would make it... He didn't come on with a big curly mustache and a black hat or anything like that. He was coming up to, to Eve and having a conversation and it was fairly gentle. And she doesn't seem to be scared or intimidated that the serpent's talking to her. It seems normal, par for the course. A lot of people treat this passage, and even Genesis 1 and 2, as mythology. Um, and this is something for you to think about, where you're coming from on that, what you think. When you look at the New Testament, though, we don't see anywhere in the New Testament where this is treated like mythology. So if you look at, and I'm just going to blast through these because there is a recording, you can look these up later. Look th Luke 3.38, Romans 5.14, 
1 Corinthians 15.45, 1 Timothy 2.13, Jude 1.14, among others, every time this passage is mentioned, it's mentioned as though it was fact and as though this is what this is how it is. So for at least 7,000 years or 6,000 years, this particular passage was treated by the Jews as actual literal interpretation. The only point in history where we've treated this as mythology within the Judeo-Christian tradition has been within the last 30 years. So the other 10,000 years of human history, this has been treated as though this is what happened, largely because the book is written that way. There aren't big epic things happening or preposterous things happening other than a serpent talking. Um, so that's really the kind of the miracle piece that you have to kind of believe in this passage. Also, even no matter how you treat this, Jesus himself treats the devil as literal, uh, that there is an evil in the world. There is an entity in the world that's trying to tempt humans. Um, in John 8:44 is one I, I pulled out to actually read. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you're not able to listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he's a liar and he's the father of lies. Satan starts with our flesh, he tests our mind, and he exaggerates our pride. So look at how he does this. And he said to the woman, has God indeed... Has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? He questions God, asking what kind of God is this? He casts doubts about God, and those doubts are essentially, he's questioning if God loves Eve, or the woman, because we don't have the word Eve yet. And it, when you question God's love, that's kind of a tenuous place to be. And we see that all the time today. And I was just thinking about, in all the different ways where people say, well, if God were a loving God, and then fill in the blank. And what does that look like? Sometimes, shadow, sometimes we ask you to do things because we love you, but oftentimes we don't understand what that love looks like, right? So sometimes we're doing things that are good for you. Okay, I'll tell a story about shadow, for instance. We're going for a walk with shadow, and he sees there must have been like a car accident because there's a little piece of taillight that's sitting by the curb. And shadow sees the taillight, and he goes right for it. And we're going, no, don't go for it. But he gets it in his mouth, and he, he's ready to eat a piece of glass and shove it down his mouth because he's shadow, and that's what shadows do. <laughs> so we have to stop. We have to grab the thing. We have to open up his jaws against his will and pull the piece of glass out of his mouth. It's easy for another dog to come up to shadow and say, did he really mean you well when he did that? Look at how abusive they are to you, pulling this thing out of your mouth. And I think sometimes when God says not to do something, it's for our own good. And he puts the law in place because he loves us. So the correct answer is exactly what God says. God says, um, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the knowledge of tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat it you shall surely die. But listen to what Eve says, because that's actually what God said, but Eve messes it up. She doesn't quite know the word. She says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Eve messes this up in two ways. She says that God said not to touch the tree, and that's not what God said. So she's adding to the word of God. The word of God was you shouldn't eat from it, but she's adding something to it. She also says, lest, or you might die, in that very last phrase, lest you die, 
That's not what God said. God said, you shall surely die. So she's taking something away from the word of God. She's taking away the confidence or the, the surety of the word of God that he has in there. So when Satan tempts and says, did God really say this? And he's testing to see if she knows the word, she messes it up. She's not rooted in the word. She doesn't memorize or put it on her heart what God says. That makes her pretty susceptible. She's open to deception at this point. And frankly, Eve's in trouble because now Satan's got her into this conversation and she's got the word of God wrong. And when that happens, Satan can take that and work with it. So he does. Verse four, then the serpent says to the woman, you will not surely die. So now Satan's going a step further, right? He's defying the word of God. He's challenging the word of God. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So after questioning the word of God, now he challenges it, and then he goes on to a full-on lie, and this is the first lie of the Bible. So the book of Genesis, we see all the firsts. So this is the first time Satan's going to lie in the Bible. It's not the last time. Shadow, lay down. You're good. Lay down. Lay down. Shadow, you need to go to your kennel. Can you lay down? All right. I think sometimes that's how God reacts with us, too. He's just like, Sean, do you got to go to your kennel? Really? Um, notice here that Satan starts to speak for God and challenges God's justice. Shadow, just settle down. All right, I got to keep focused. Uh, sorry. One of the things Satan does here is that he challenges God's justice, and he challenges it openly, saying that God's trying to hold something back from you. And I think that's a lot of times how people that I know that resist or don't want to serve God they often do it because they feel like if I serve God, I'm going to lose something. God wants to hold back from me these things in my life that I enjoy so much. And it's the same thing that Satan's really doing here is he's putting that thing, that idea into Eve's head saying God's holding back from you. You can be different or better or have a better time with these things. And he does it in this kind of way. There's a temptation that, that you won't be judged, that God won't give consequences for this. And it's the first doctrine in the Bible where God says, if you do this, there's going to be a consequence. And one of the Satan says, not only is that you won't get the consequence, but that your life's going to be better if you kind of do this stuff. So it's a lot like shadow eating glass. There's a consequence to eating glass that we don't want him to have. Um, let's compare this temptation to when Jesus is tempted in the desert. So if you go to Matthew uh, chapter 4, and there's verse 3 used to be able to hear this when people flip around, but now people just click. Now, when the tempter came to him, he said, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become bread. But he answered and said, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What's interesting here is that's really the same thing he's tempting Eve with, is food. So he's tempting her and him with the flesh. Right? Here's something that could you think would be really awesome to do. 
Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. And the devil took him up and, and uh, wait a second. By bread alone, says the mouth of God. Oh, then the devil took him up to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down for it's written, he shall give angels over the charge of you. And in their hands, they shall bear you up, lest you not dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, it's written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. So Jesus actually gets the passage right when he responds to Satan. He actually has the word of God memorized and he nails it and it kind of shuts Satan down. Remember, Satan said to Eve, for God knows in that day, if you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, you can't die. And that's kind of what he's saying to to Jesus too: throw yourself off the building because you're not going to die. There's nothing that'll happen to you. There won't be a consequence. God says angels are going to carry you up. And then he says to Jesus in verse 8 of Matthew 4, Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, All these things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. First of all, Satan can't give that. He can't. He doesn't have the authority to do that. But Jesus says to him, Away with you, Satan, for it's written, You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. So in the same way that he goes to Eve and says, you can be like God, you can have everything, you can have the world. He tempts her spirit, tries to tempt Jesus' spirit too. Mind, flesh, and pride. Satan starts with the flesh, the things that we can look at, things look wonderful to eat. Then he tests our mind and challenges it, and then he exaggerates our pride and said, well, you can have all these things. There's nothing new under the sun, and we see from Genesis all the way to Matthew that there really isn't a change in Satan's tactics. That's how he gets at you. John said, all that's in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. So the lust of the flesh, this is good for food. The lust of the eye, it's pleasant pleasant to the eyes. That one's not hard to see. And the pride of life, the tree's desirable to make one wise. So when the woman saw that it was good, the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate it. She also gave it to her husband, and with her he ate. Joshua with Achan. Do you remember this story? So Joshua was taken over after Moses. And they take over their first town and they say, we're going to destroy everything. We're not taking anything for ourselves. This first town's going to be a gift to God. But there's one guy named Achan that sees something. It looks good to him. He decides he won't get caught and he takes it. Um, so And he stores it away and stashes it away so that he can have it. And of course they find him, but it's the same temptation. He sees it. He makes a decision about it, his mind. And then he decides to invest and expand his wealth by taking it for himself, his pride. We see the same thing with David when he sees Bathsheba. She looks good. He makes a decision about it. He brings her up to the room. And then he decides he can have any woman he wants in the kingdom, pride. And it keeps going again and again and again. There's so many examples of this through the Bible that this is humans fall through this path all the time. Sin doesn't enter the world through Eve, but through Adam. He eats his own choice and not deception. Um, Notice that Eve doesn't go to God here. She goes to Adam, (laughs) and she makes this decision to go straight to Adam and do this. Um, and, And we don't see God intervening between Adam and Eve and Adam. 
And I think there's some reasons for that. One, it's so that the guys of the world can't always blame the girls of the world for things that go wrong. <laughs> because God doesn't actually intervene and call this sin until Adam eats. And that's kind of a curious thing for me. Another thought about how she goes to Adam, sin loves company. When somebody does something wrong and they know they're doing things wrong, all they want to do is recruit people. So there's this natural recruiting that goes on with sin. Um, and I remember first seeing that when I got my first job and all the teachers would go out on a Friday night and they'd go out for drinks. And I would have a soda because it was just a weird thing. And you, it was really hard for them to accept that I just wanted to drink a soda. And it was something where they felt like I needed to be drinking with them. Um, and at the time, for me, that was just a thing. So verse 7, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves coverings. Satan twists the truth again. He says, your eyes will be opened. Well, they are open, but they're not open to the likeness of God. They're open to each other and the failings and flaws of each other. They become ashamed. So Satan twisted that a little bit because he promised their eyes would get opened, and that's not what happens to them. And sin's a lot of that way. The promise is that it's going to be fun and engaging. There's going to be this awesomeness to it. But at the end of the day, that's not always the end result of sin. What they do get is body awareness. Another distinction from the animal kingdom. Shadow has no shame with his nakedness. All of us have clothes on. So the body now rules the mind. And that's an interesting thing. What the real consequence of sin is, they used to be living first for the spirit in relationship with God. And they didn't even think about their own bodies in the flesh because there was food to eat. The weather was pretty nice. But now it's all flipped. The first thing they think about after sin is they think about covering up their bodies and taking care of their bodies first. And then their mind, and the thing that's really broke here is their relationship with God, their spiritual side. They don't trust each other. There's a breach not only from God, but between each other. And we have this awakening of a guilt and a conscience and a spiritual death, and it can't be escaped. And they're trying to cover it up. And we're still trying to cover it up. And you look around and you see people in your life. According to the Bible, we all have sin in our lives. And we all try to cover it up. And it's one of the most amazing things. The entry point to the church is to confess your sin. In other words, stop trying to cover it up. I am a sinner. Here's my sin. Lord, take it away. I want to serve you. But the way we exited a relationship with God was also that sin. And it's interesting that that's the way we enter back into the presence of God is to confess it. You'd think that's what God wants from us because the first thing he tries to do, he doesn't just go after Adam and Eve. He actually asks them a few questions. And you wonder what where the world would be like if they would have just confessed their sins. And Shadow, can you can we put him in the bathroom or something, Katie? Can we try to down Okay, thanks. All right. So we meet God in spirit, we praise God in our mind. And then our last thing should be our bodies. It's interesting when you think of this thing, the sin thing being about our spirit, our mind, and our body, that Jesus uses that kind of language. So if you think of the story of Nicodemus, one of the things he says to Nicodemus is that you have to be born again of the spirit. And the reason he's saying that, according to Genesis, is because the spirit died at this sin point. And what needs to happen then is that spirit needs to be resurrected. Until that happens, we're ruled by our mind and we're ruled by, ruled by our flesh. Here's another cool thought I had before I get to chapter 8. 
there's two trees in the garden, this tree that gives them a knowledge of good and evil, which essentially gives them guilt. Thank you for that tree. The other tree in the garden, remember, was the tree of life. And we still have this choice. And it's weird to think this is abstracted because we essentially have the same choice today. We have a choice between two trees, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or there's this tree that saves us in the form of the cross. And you can choose that tree too. And we have the same, everybody has the same choice. And that's one of the things where it's interesting because we're not really that different from Adam and Eve. We still get to make a choice. And they made the wrong one, but it's not that that God doesn't give them a chance to repent and redeem themselves. So they spend this good part of their lives where they can come back to knowing God and walking and talking with God. Our human nature took away one of those trees and our souls can bring it back through Christ. I'll go on to verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Notice that God doesn't hide himself from humans. God is walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Some people think this is uh, um, an appearance of God in the form of Christ. So they would have gotten to walk and talk with Jesus in the garden. God pursues man. He's looking around for them. Um, And it's the humans that consistently hide themselves from God. It's us that hides ourselves from God. By not talking to him, by not reading his word, by not being in the presence of other believers, we run a ride. Um, And God says, and the Lord called to Adam and he says to him, where are you? He wants to know why Adam, wants Adam to confess his sin, I think. Literally, instead of where are you, which is three words in our language, there's only one word, which is i.e., and, the, and it means where. So God's just kind of walking through the garden saying where. Um, another way to interpret is, Adam, do you understand your condition? Where are you in, in a spiritual sense? Not where are you physically, because God knows where he is. But wh- where are you now is another way to interpret it. Um, so Adam, now that you've eaten the apple, where are you now? What has it done to you? What's your position? And I think sometimes prior to any kind of repentance in our life, God has to do that with us too. Um, He has to come to us and say, where are you at right now? What are you doing? And when you go into a healthy body of believers, they're often asking that question. How's your week? What's going on with you? What's your position? And and where are you at? And if you can't answer that question freely, nakedly, so to speak, um, and honestly, then that can be, that's something where probably there's something in your life that's kind of holding you back. Verse 10, sorry, Shadow, almost, maybe next week. He thinks he's going to be a good thing. (laughs) So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. And he said, who told you you were naked? Again, I think God, and you see this with Jesus all the time. He asks questions of people. Not that he doesn't know the answer, but he's really looking for Adam to make a decision here, make make a turning point. Who told you you were naked? You shouldn't know that if you didn't eat from that tree. Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? I remember doing this with the kids (laughs) when they're like three and they've gotten into something and they got stuff strewn all over the place. And you're like, Grant, what are you doing there? (laughs) And amazingly, humans say things like nothing. (laughs) I, you know, did you, did you get into the pens? Or why are the cotton balls all over the place? Or the toilet paper, that was a good one. Yeah. 
You think you should have been in the toilet paper like that? No, maybe. Or often, sometimes, kids have a conscience and they just start to cry. And they just bawl because they know what they've done is way out of line. Seemed really good at the time, jumping on the guests' coats. Right? You remember that one? Putting them all on the bed and jumping on them like a big fluffy thing and doing that. It seemed like really fun. It was looked pleasant to the eyes. The mind thought, this is a delight. But the spirit was dead. There was no conscience there. So when we said, what, what are you doing in here? And all of a sudden the tears, the waterworks start to come because something in us knows, I shouldn't be doing this. This is just wrong. Verse 12, then the man said to the woman, who, the woman you gave, oh, then the man said, so this is Adam, the woman you gave to me to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. This is not a confession by Adam. This is one of those things like, I'm sorry you think I did something to hurt your feelings. This is not a real kind of confession. Adam has every chance here to do it. What he gives is an excuse and an explanation. It's also the first time in history that a husband blames his wife for anything. Note that God doesn't wait for an answer on the first question. He knows. He's trying to guide Adam. He gives rhetorical questions. Also note here that God's not giving condemnation. He's not condemning someone for the sin or doing the wrong thing. There's a natural consequence to eating of that tree, and the natural consequence is that they are ashamed of themselves, and they're feeling guilty, and they think more of their flesh than their spirit. So there's a natural consequence of being outside the will of God. All sins are like this. It amazes me when you meet people like we have met people that have lung cancer and they're in the hospital going through chemotherapy and then they come home and sit outside and have a cigarette. And you just think, then the toughest part is when you start talking about God, they think, well, I'm praying that I'm going to be healed. And you think, this is so mixed up. Like, do you think that you can just keep smoking cigarettes? God will magically heal your lungs for some reason and there's no repentance. There's nothing there. Surely God can heal. He can make those lungs look like new, but there's natural consequences to some of these things that we do. And it's not that smoking itself is a sin. I get that. Um, but it's this idea that somehow God's going to magically fix things that we've created for ourselves. And sometimes God, in his love, gives us the freedom to do these things. Adam, in this case, is trapped. When he blames the woman, he's in a place right now where he's made his own trap in front of God. Because he's blamed something, he's made some excuse, he's not repented, and he's already put himself there. And this is the state we find ourselves in in sin. And I don't know about you, but I remember before I was sinned how much of my life went into maintaining and defending and excusing immoral behavior. Right? I remember stealing money from my dad's wallet. I hope he never listens to this. And I remember being so guilty for that, but it looked good. And I thought I can go bowling all afternoon with that money and I would steal it and take it and walk over to the bowling alley and treat all my friends to bowling. And then I would come home and I felt horrible about it and I felt guilty about it. So I had to kill that part of myself to be able to steal money the next weekend and do the same thing all over again. And it was this trap of sin that I was in where I thought I was getting something good, but what I was doing is I was losing my character every time I did it. It was chipping away at my integrity and who I was. 
technically then, Adam blames God for his own mistakes. The woman you gave to be with me, this is your fault, God, that you put someone in my life that does the wrong thing. How can that happen? Verse 13, the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. So both Adam and Eve give excuses. This is so for the rest of the history of the world, women can't say to men, well, you're the one that screwed up. So God gives the woman an opportunity to make the exact same mistake. We move or there's a shift in Genesis to what goes from a a narrative prose to a poetic prose. And in verse 14, if your Bibles have it in more of a poetry stanza-like state, it's because that's how it is in the actual scrolls. And that might be because this is the part that little Jewish children had to memorize. So they turned it into more of a song or more of a rhyming piece so it was easier to memorize. Verse 14, so the Lord God said to the serpent, notice he doesn't ask the serpent what he's done. The serpent knows what he's done and God's not giving the serpent a chance to make a mistake because in deception, the serpent's already sinned against the Holy Spirit. He's already set himself up as an enemy of God, not just somebody making a mistake or being selfish. Um, And sinning against the Holy Spirit is something you don't really come back from, and we see that later in the New Testament. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, you are cursed more than all cattle. Apparently cattle don't have it very good. And more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between you and the woman your seed and her seed he shall bruise your head and he shall and you shall bruise his heel notice that he and his are both capitalized we'll come back to that this is our first promise in some ways actually it's, we'll go back to it right now there's a few things here that in this poem you need to point out in your bibles the word seed should be capitalized too it's a proper name of some sort also We all know biologically women don't have seeds, they have eggs. So there's something here that's kind of odd, and that's because uh, this is uh, the protevangelon, or the first gospel we see in the Bible. There's a promise at the time of sin that comes here. So if the woman has a seed, it's there's essentially this is an, an allusion to a virgin birth. And Isaiah says, a virgin shall conceive, his name shall be Emmanuel, and a day will come when Christ will bruise the head of power. Satan will bruise his heel. We don't know if this is a reference to the cross, if it's that Satan stymies the church for 2,000 years or however long the church era is going to be. But Satan's going to take away, or Christ will take away Satan's power and Satan will then be attacking Christ through history. And we set up this great conflict between good and evil. But you all know this, so I'm going to keep moving on. I just think it's kind of a cool thing when you see that between you and her seed. The other piece that's kind of interesting is we're going to see in chapter four and five that when Adam and Eve have Cain and Abel, there's little hints there that they were thinking Cain might be the Messiah. So that idea of looking for the Messiah has been a part of all human history and that Jews were looking for Messiah before Christ came. We're looking for Messiah to return. Um, But there's some indication there that this idea that your seed, the woman's seed, will be something that actually um, 
fights or breaks this curse that's coming up. So that's the curse of of the serpent. To the woman, he says, I will greatly multiply your sorrow. Remember her her command in the garden was to multiply and cover the earth. And that was the command of a lot. That multiplication should be really good, a pleasurable thing and a wonderful thing. But instead of multiplying her, her children, she's going to multiply her sorrow and her conception in making children. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So there's three curses for women. Sorry, ladies in the room. One, there's going to be sorrow in, in your life and in con- conception. Uh, apparently, if people are living 900 years and people don't die, there isn't a need to make a lot of children. So part of the curse of having death be in our life is that we need to make children a lot quicker. So cycles get sped up, conception has to be more painful, um, and it's certainly more painful than what we see with most animals. For some reason, humans have a lot more painful experience when it comes to making new babies. Number two, there's pain in childbirth and ongoing pain with raising kids. So it's not just conception, it's in pain you shall bring forth children. So there's this idea that as we raise children, there's some pain that goes with that, and that pain has to do with sin. And you think of, you know, things that we consider cliche, a mother's love, you know, and when a son or a daughter go off the rails, that's heartbreaking for mothers. It's horrible for mothers. Um, I think it's bad for dads, too. I don't know if that's fair to dads, but... I do think there's the part where there's it's extremely hard to, to do that. And if now death is introduced in the world, the natural consequence is you're going to have to worry about your kids being dead. You know, we don't regenerate very quickly. If that thing hits you very, very hard, you could die. Um, so you have this increase in pain as you raise children because you worry about those children. I decided a long time ago I wasn't going to worry about my two children. If they died, we'd make more, or so be it, that's what would do to God. So oftentimes, Grant would be going for the electrical outlet, and I'd say, go ahead, try it, Grant. We'll see what happens. He was always smart enough to not go for the outlet and not listen to his dad in that. But I thought, I don't know, this could be the moment. Or he'd make mistakes, and we'll say, I wonder if you're ever going to make it to age 21. But here he is, he's at age 21. Number three, this desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. The word desire there is also, it's not a male-female thing. It's also used with Cain and Abel, and we'll see that here in a little bit. It's the same Hebrew word, and it really means to rule over or to command someone. Uh, so you shall com- your desire shall be to command your husband, to rule your husband, but he shall rule over you, and that word gets slightly shifted. So apparently there's this desire from, from women, according to Genesis, to be the boss and to be in charge. Um, yet that's going to be a thing that's a conflict in the marriage forever and ever. And I think sometimes people misuse this first, like that's an okay thing, like this is a good thing that there's conflict in a marriage, that there's this challenge of who will be in control in this fight. In the garden, there was no challenge. There was this equity between man and woman. They were, he made them and they were made as one. And there was an agreement with them that happened. And part of the curse is we don't agree with the people we live with anymore especially in male-female relationships. The same devour is to, the desire is a, a devour like, like a beast would eat something or consume something. Uh, and the verse, if you want to write it in your notes, is uh, chapter 4, verse 7, 
where Cain desires or to control over or to rule over other things. It's not a good thing. The good thing was to be naked, unashamed, and harmonious. And now we have a curse where we're not. God associates sin here with sorrow and pain. Note that when Satan tempted Eve, he associated sin with something desirable. This is going to be great. You're going to be like God. But the way God looks at sin, he just associates it with sorrow. This is the beginning of the end for you, and you're going to struggle. Isn't that kind of a downer? And he turns to Adam, and he says to Adam, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and you have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil or sorrow you shall eat of it. So he curses both men and women with a form of sorrow all the days of your life. This is not like tending the Garden of Eden. This is working the garden, cleaning up the, the trees after the, the tornadoes and hard labor and work to keep something orderly and clean. Verse 18, Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. And in the sweat of your face you, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken and for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. You're going to die. Your life is that, that you're going to work hard, and then you're going to have to die. Nothing will be easy anymore. Again, it's not like necessarily like God is punishing Adam and Eve here. He's basically saying, you ate this fruit, and here's the curse that comes with this fruit, is that you're going to have to work on these things. That as sin enters the world, those things that used to be easy for you, the innocence of things, will not, you won't be innocent anymore. So death is the new curse for both Adam and Eve. All creation around them starts to groan and moan. And we see that there's a curse that's going to happen to both of them. Okay, some cool thoughts here. If you go to verse 18, both thorns and thistles, there's a couple other places where thorns come into play that helps, I think, see the whole picture of the word of God. The curse is thorns and thistles. And remember Jesus talked about seeds that would get planted? And one of those seeds, the thing that makes it so it doesn't take root and serve, you know, a, a new believer takes root and blossoms in Christ, is that the thorns would surround it and the worries of the world would take it over. And Jesus actually explains that metaphor. And it's interesting that the thorns and thistles here are also associated with the work that we do. So I was thinking of this this week. As with all those people that are going through all this stuff with the layoffs, it is really easy to let the work that we have consume us. And I think that's the thing here. When we shift our focus from our spiritual life to our physical life and our mental life, it's super easy to let this work that we have to do take us away from God. And I think that's what's going on with a lot of people right now because these things overcrowd our soul and take us away from Jesus. We let that happen all the time. Another instance where we see thorns in the Bible is when Adam and Eve bring the curse into the world, the thing that's going to release us from that slavery to that curse is a guy who dies on another tree and he's got a crown of thorns around his head. And the Romans press those thorns into his skull and in the same way that we have to endure those things and the sweat of his brow and the sweat of his face is part of what he's experiencing in the heat of the day on that cross and part of exactly how Jesus is punished for our sins has to do with this curse that God put there in the very first place. And Jesus takes that on himself in a way that there's nothing more fitting for that sacrifice to be, to be there. And Adam called his wife's name Eve. Notice that Eve gets a name after the curse. 
before the curse, they were just Adam. Adam means human. And they were just together. And now Eve gets a name. The word Eve means hava, which means living. And the verse says that too. Adam calls his wife's name Eve because she is the mother of all living. Um, now, of course, she gets a name because they're not one flesh. They're separated. Um, and we have this first exercise of ruling over. Um, Hava, the, the mother of all life, also means she would be the boss or the, the creator of those things. I think Adam appreciates that God's giving some mercy. He doesn't kill them right away. Uh, they do get to live for a period of time. They get to make children. And that lifespan that Adam and Eve get after this, because he says they died when they ate the fruit. And they have died spiritually, but they also have a chance to renew and, and be redeemed throughout the rest of their life. I think this is sweet too, and it shows God's grace. They had made fig leaves from themselves, and if anybody's tried to wear leaves, they don't last very long, they're not particularly good clothing, but something has to die for God's grace to happen. So notice in verse 21, Adam, also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. If they're lambskin, then a lamb had to die. So to cover up the sin, to to conceal it or to deal with it, uh, we see the first sacrifice. And God does that first sacrifice to clothe Adam and Eve, to help them deal with this new consciousness they have. So we God, give, God gives them another act of grace by helping the, to give them clothing. Now the animals had to be slain to start covering that sin with a sacrifice. Um, for without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. All sacrifices then from here all the way through to Jesus are innocent sacrifices. That animal did nothing to deserve what it got, and it didn't deserve death. Verse 22, then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, to know good and evil, and now lest he put out his hand and also take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So here we see a third act of grace. God's going to not give them access to eternal life in this state of sin and death and being cursed in sorrow and pain. Until they're redeemed, until they've broken this lock on sin, um, it is an amazing act of grace that he blocks the way to that second tree. The Trinity's expressed when God says, one of us. We see that again. Um, Apparently the serpent's already betrayed him because he says man's become like one of us. And the only difference here, to know good and evil, God already knew evil. Apparently the serpent has already betrayed God at this point in the story. So he already knew what that was. And that bro probably broke God's heart because later on we see that the Satan was one of the, the highest of the angels, was beautiful, was made that way. Um, and we see that. So out of mercy, God blocks the way. The tree hasn't gone away. We see the tree of life appears again in Revelations. And Revelations 2.7, He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. To him that overcomes, I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So God does his first transplant. He takes the tree of life out of the Garden of Eden, and there's this other paradise that God has prepared where the tree of life is still growing and still exists. And the promise of Revelation is this plan that God started with is eventually going to come forward and we're going to be there. The difference is those that get into heaven have to get there through Jesus Christ. He's the sacrifice. 
crowned with thorns that covers that sin. Verse 23, Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out man and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword to turn, which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So this is Adam's fall. It sets up a redeemer and it's the same kind of thing we have now. Adam gets to choose if he wants to redeem his relationship with God. He has time to do that. Adam and Eve put their faith in the serpent. They tried to eat that fruit and hope for the better. Now humans have to put their faith in God and turn away and walk towards God. We don't get it by default like Adam and Eve did. And that's the narrative that sets up this story. I think that's a really interesting point that essentially the fall of Adam and Eve is they put their faith in the serpent. And when we go through life, we can decide what we put our faith in. And it's getting harder and harder to put your faith in God because we're getting fewer and fewer examples of that in our society and in our, in our world. You almost have to be a rebel and do what's different from the people around you unless you grew up in a family that follows God. But to say, I'm going to give up the things of this world, the thorns of my work, and all these other things that would distract me from God, and I'm going to serve God to make that choice is essentially the opposite of the choice that Eve and Adam made. They gave up everything they had around them, and they chose to follow and put their faith in the serpent. I love that God doesn't block the tree of life forever. He's guarding it in these verses, not destroying it. So from the beginning to end, our calling is much more than to believe in God. In fact, in the New Testament, they even point out that even the demons believe there is a God. So believing there is a God is not the challenge here in our lives. It's not what this narrative sets up. Choosing God, choosing to serve God, to be obedient to God, even when we don't understand what's on that tree of knowledge of good and evil, um, is a way that we have to overcome sin, that Adam and Eve fell into sin, but our job in life is to overcome sin. And that's, again... Like I said at the beginning, this is one of the most important chapters of the Bible. If that makes sense, then all of the rest of the Bible starts to make sense. Because all the rest of the Bible are narratives of human beings trying to overcome their sin. Do we have time for chapter 4? It's a lot faster. Yes? All right. So we do want to finish the Bible. Chapter 4. For chapter 1, creation brings order out of chaos. Chapter 2, there's Sabbath, and humans are created in that ideal. Chapter 3, humans choose the flesh over the spirit. Now our job in life is to choose the spirit over the flesh. Now in chapter 4, we see humans begin to populate the earth. The Bible begins on a particular narrative that eventually leads us to Christ. And I think that's the coolest part about this. When we see in Hebrews 11, Paul goes, well, if you think Paul wrote Hebrews, goes through all of these stories and just ticks off. This person had faith, and this person had faith, and this person had faith. From this point forward, almost every narrative we have is a story about people having faith or not having faith in God. And we're going to see that these narratives are supposed to be reflections or things that we can look at, like Paul did, to see how we should be serving God. Verse 1, now Adam knew his Eve, his wife, and this is new in the biblical sense. It means they got together in a very special way. We'll keep it PG-13. And she conceived and she bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Note how she phrases that. It, it says Adam knew his wife. This is actually a son that's coming from Adam, not from the Lord. 
But Eve, I think, is really excited because the promise was someday your seed is going to conquer this serpent. And that hope of the seed is right there at the beginning. The anticipation then of a redeemer from this cursed state starts right off the bat with Adam and Eve and their very first child. Even after Jesus, we want to be, even after Jesus, we still anticipate that he'll come back and return. Verse two, then she bore again, this time her brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. So the obvious question here is, why was one of these offerings rejected and why was one of them accepted? And what's the difference between the two? The differences were given are that Cain was working with his hands in the field and Abel actually made a blood sacrifice. He killed something as a sacrifice. Um, And you'd think, okay, well, so it has to be a blood sacrifice and not the work of our hands. Because if that's the case, we're all in trouble because we give money, which is not even the work of our hands. It's just a representation of the work of our hands. In the book of Leviticus, there actually are acceptable offerings, which were made of cakes. So they'd make these cakes and give them to the temple. So it really has nothing to do with if it's a blood sacrifice, because we see later in the law that that's not a problem. Going to Hebrews 11, Abel's gift, according to the writer of Hebrews, was a gift of faith, and Cain's was not. So we see the first instance of religion. Cain's giving a gift because he has to, and Abel's giving a gift because he wants to. And the difference is between our hearts. So faith adds a quality to our sacrifices. The result from the sinner, of course, is when you don't get your way, you get super ticked off. Uh, So Cain gets angry, and we see this oftentimes too. Um, Cain's fruit wasn't to try again to repent. His fruit was anger. And I think that's true when you see a lot of people. Have you ever told somebody that you think they're sinning? How has that gone for you? I'm asking it rhetorically, I guess. We'll come back to it when we get done with this talk. Most of the time when you have to talk to somebody about sin, about something you're not going to join in with or something you're not okay with, and you're forced into this conversation, you get one of two responses. You get people going, oh, I'm so sorry, you're right. I totally, I was wrong, I repent, I'll go back the other way. Um, I want your friendship more than anything else, so this means a lot to me, I can stop doing that. Or you get the other reaction, which is the one Cain gave, where you just, they just get furious with you. So the Lord said to Cain, again, the Lord asked these questions, why are you angry? Who told you you were naked? And why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? So God knows Cain's heart. And again, he gives Cain a chance to do the right thing. He coaches Cain. He tries to address Cain. And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and the desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Here's that word for desire. So this is necessarily the kind of lustful desire in a marriage, perhaps. It's a different kind of word. Um, If you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire, it's wants to consume you. It wants to like a, you know, again, this word is like a beast that wants to eat something. It's desires for you, but you should rule over it. So we see at the beginning of chapter four, this narrative is the same narrative we've always seen. There's now a battle between sin and serving the Lord. And 
Cain's struggling with this. He's given this fruit of his field up, but he doesn't want to. His heart's not in the right place. And God's saying, look, this would be an acceptable sacrifice. If you do well, wouldn't it be accepted? But he knows his heart and what's wrong with his heart. This is very hard for Shadow. Be honest, do you feel sorry for Shadow? Or do you feel sorry for us? <sighs> this is the first time we see God tells Cain ahead of time and he names it sin. And now we have a word that goes with this defiance or this disobedience or this bad heart towards God. Instead of causing it to repent, though, it puts murder in his heart. So it's not just that Cain gets mad. He gets mad to the point where he wants to kill the one that's right with God. In the same way the Pharisees killed Jesus. In the same way they tried to kill Elijah. In the same way they killed Stephen. When you tell someone who's really self-righteous that they're wrong, it's not just that they get mad or don't want to be your friend. There's actually this desire to get rid of you and get you out of the picture. Because you stand there as someone whose righteousness comes from God as this painful example of how good life could be for them if they gave up of their own pride. So in verse 8, Now Cain talked with his brother Abel. It came to pass, they were in the field, that Cain rose up against his Abel, his brother, and killed him. So just up and whacked him. It's in the field, which I think is kind of interesting, because remember, Cain was the tender of the field. So Abel's just coming to hang out with his brother. Because you can't bring those animals into the field. So it's interesting that Abel's just kind of there. And maybe Abel was coming to say, you know, hey, Cain, stop being so angry. And can I do anything? Can I help? Then the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? This isn't because God doesn't know. He's coaching Cain. And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. In other words, God says, I see what you're doing. I know what you're doing. My greatest terror is standing before God at the end of my days and him saying, Sean, what have you done? Have you wasted your life? And I really That's one of the things that drives me to God. Instead of driving me away from God, it drives me to God. I don't want to be in that position. I don't want God to say, look at all these opportunities and gifts I gave you, and what did you do with them? The questions are open to us, too. In, in fact, if, if you're talking to people that are unbelievers... That question is a really hard question to answer. Do you think God sees what you're doing or not? What have you done? And you have, like, like intellectually, you only have a few responses. There's no God, so I don't care what a non-existent entity says about me. Or maybe there's a God, but God doesn't care what I have to do, which is ignoring the word of God and what's right and wrong. Or you repent. God wants some sort of an acknowledgement here from Cain. Again, he's not condemning Cain for murder. Like, he's not coming out saying, you killed somebody, you're in trouble. His first thing is to try to get to Cain's heart, which says that death is not as big of a deal to God as it is to us, right? And death is part of this curse, but there's something that, if Abel's blood is crying out to God, it means that there must still be a spirit there. God's still talking to Abel, even though he's physically dead. Um, Cain doesn't show any repentance or a sense of guilt. He feels justified in what he did. And this is kind of a scary place to be. 1 John 1.8 says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins 
and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Confession is so tough for me. I won't even speak for us, but confession is so tough because you have to admit you're wrong. The book of Judges, one of the, the damning statements they give in the book of Judgment is, the people did what was right in their own eyes. And I look around today and I see so many people doing what they think is right in their own eyes and not bowing and saying, God, we're going to do what's right in your eyes. And it's, again, part of what they want to do is stuff that's destructive in their life. And it actually does damage in some way, shape, or form. Verse 11, so now you're cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond you shall be on this earth. And Cain said to the Lord, that punishment is greater than I can bear. It's an odd thing to say because he's guilty of murder. I mean, he just killed somebody. And God's not giving him death as a consequence for that. It's a pretty light punishment for what Cain has done, but I think God's still trying to work with Cain's heart. Surely you've driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth, and it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone find him and should kill him. So if you, you mess with Cain, you're going to be taken on sevenfold. And then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord, and he dwelt in the land of Nod to the east of Eden, which we don't know where that is. And Cain knew his wife. I got my theories, though. You all know that. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch, and he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. This is a huge problem for tons of people. Where did Cain get his wife? And where did that wife come from? So the best answers I could find were the ones that I, I'm going to share with you. One is the genealogy of the Bible is not complete and it doesn't pretend to be complete. The genealogy from Adam and Eve goes straight to Jesus. And every story that we see in the Old Testament is on this narrative of Jesus. Even ones that look like they're off to the side are actually the story of somebody's mom that goes right into that timeline. And when we see that genealogy in Matthew, all of those stories are tied into the genealogy. So the Old Testament recording kind of points right at Jesus, which we'll get to later. But God's interested in only one genealogy. That's from Abraham to David to Christ. In chapter, in chapter 5, we see only one son listed. So when we see the genealogy in chapter 5, notice that it doesn't list Cain, Abel, Enoch, Seth. We don't see all that. We see Seth. Like Adam and Eve only had one kid, but he doesn't. In other words, when the story of Cain and Abel is told, if we look at that genealogy in chapter 5, we see that they're 130 years old when Seth is born in chapter 5, which means that when Cain and Abel's story happens... They're roughly 120 years old, which is four generations of baby making for our times. So it is very possible that the mother of all living had a number of kids that were marrying with other kids and cousins, and the family tree could have gotten pretty big in 120 years. And even when we look in the United States, we're only 200 years old as a nation, but look at all the people that have populated this part of the world with how few people came over initially. 
So we see that people can populate territory very quickly when they aren't killing each other all the time. So if the first murder was Cain and Abel, then that population in 120 years could very reasonably make plenty of people for them to marry. It's just a thought. Um, also in chapter 5, it says Adam and Eve had sons and daughters, but none of the daughters are mentioned. But clearly not all the sons are mentioned either. Also, the Bible doesn't say that God didn't create other people than Adam and Eve. It's silent on that topic. So it's one of those things where usually when the Bible wants to make a point, it makes a point and it covers those things. But it doesn't say that God just didn't make another thousand people and then do this. So if Enoch made a city, like how does that happen? Does he just build empty buildings with no people in it? Um, and what does that look like? Or is God still working with people and creating things as we go? It just doesn't say. Verse 18, to Enoch was born Irad, to Irad born Mahujael, and Mahujael begot Methuselel, and Methuselel begot Lamech. And then Lamech took for himself two wives. The one was named Adah, and the second was named Zillah, and Adah bore Jabel. And he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. I, these things are charming to me. So all those people in the tents, that, those are Adah and Jabel's kids. The brother's name was Jubal, and he was the father of all who, those who play the harp and the flute. So we see the early devel development of music and instruments. As for Zillah, she also bore Tubal Cain, an instructor of every craftsman, craftsman in bronze and iron. Okay, this should make historians stop and go, what? Wait a second. Bronze and iron? Within five generations? Even if you take the timelines that come to be, these are really early metals. This is way before the Bronze Age. Way before the Bronze Age. Even the Bible kind of is weird with this because remember when David first started fighting the Philistines, the primary disadvantage he had is that they had iron chariots and he did not. The Israelites didn't have those kind of metals. So how do they have those kinds of metals here, but David didn't have them to fight with later on? And what does that look like? Not only that, this is a claim then that iron and bronze were both developed well before the flood. So where did those people go? Where did those craftsmen go? Where did those skills go? Shouldn't there be artifacts of these things? So you do a little more research and there's lots of archeological evidence that we had high technology from the earliest known civilizations. So a lot of people think there was the Babylonians and the Akkadians, there's actually evidence of another group of people, and we don't talk about these people in world history class. I know because I used to teach this. The Sumerians are removed from most history books. At best, they get a sentence, and there were some Sumerians. The weird part is the Sumerians, we have over 14,000 written cuneiform artifacts that were in both the Akkadian libraries and the Babylonian libraries that we still had access to and we can see. We know a lot about the Sumerian people. And this could be the city that Enoch built because they would have been about roughly 7,000 to 6,000 years ago is the first known human civilization. So for what you don't know about the Sumerians, let me just give you a little bit from their own stuff. By all evidence, the Sumerians had every piece of major technology needed for survival. They had every key indication of civilization including, I'll just go through these. I made a list. They had 
a full written language, and it's from this language we know what they had. They had lunar calendars. They had a 60-minute system, so they had time almost exactly how we have it today. They had circle geometry, both letters and symbolic representations. They actually had made the wheel. They had cylinder seals. The Ashurbanipal tablets show a massive economy. They had glass, sailboats. They had a thing called the Baghdad battery, which uses water and pressure to build electricity. Crazy at this period in history. They had a plow where they used metal and bronze to build it. Full sewer systems, and we found maps of their sewer systems in their writing. Irrigation systems, high-end mapping technology, trade routes, jewelry. The women wore makeup. And think of the chemistry and the technology needed for that. I wouldn't be putting that stuff on there. We found beer recipes, which are advanced um, science to be able to make a proper beer. Uh, they had over 23 instruments described in their writings. So a full understanding of math and tune and tone. They also had lots of parties and sex. So full wanton hedonism in Sumerian culture. They also had school systems. They had business contracts. They had a heliocentric solar system with planets in the image. And they actually had an extra planet in their solar system, which some people think is the asteroid belt that's going around right now. First known language. At the time, there's no evidence that any other languages were spoken other than Sumerian in their writings. So when they had trade partners, they worked in the same language. They even had a battle between um, the battle of the cattle and the battle of the grain, which sounds a lot like Cain and Abel. They also had a story of a baby that was hidden in a basket in reeds, um, which looks, their, their character was a cod, and the Bible has one called Moses. And they have an account of a flood, which is almost identical to what we see in Genesis. Only differences that the Sumerians had with much of what we're going to read in the Bible is religion. They had a slightly different religion. They believed that there wasn't one God, that there were lots of Anunnaki. And the, okay, it's getting kooky now, I know. But this is just from their writings. The Anunnaki were these beings from heaven that taught them all their technology and all their skills. And they're the ones that showed them how to do all of these things. And without the Anunnaki, they went to know how to do these things. They give all their credit to these Anunnaki. They were winged beings that suddenly disappear from history. And their creation account, another religion, was only six days. They didn't have a day of rest at the end of the creation account. This is on the, their third tablet. And then finally they had Nephilim or angels that would come and talk to them and share things with them that they could be with. Everything they do in these tablets, all this technology I just listed, is celebrating these Nephilim or praising them like gods. They're serving these gods. And as you get religions and civilizations that go after the Sumerians, everything's one step away. There's flood accounts in most ancient religions, but they become further and further differentiated from the biblical account. So one thought then is, well, didn't Moses come after this stuff in Genesis? And if Moses is using original text straight from Adam, that makes sense. Uh, we'll come back to that when we get to the genealogy. But let's come back to this. And the sister of Tubal Cain was Nama. And then Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. Wives of Lamech, listen to my speech. For I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech 
70 times 7 fold. Where else do we see 70 times 7? Forgiveness. It's when Jesus says how many, Peter's saying, how many times we got to forgive these idiots? And Jesus says, 70 times 7. Lamech apparently kills a guy, a fallen man, and wants to be avenged. Uh, it's interesting here with Lamech that he confesses it right away. It's almost like humans are kind of learning their lessons. Um, verse 25, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son named Seth. So in this first, we see uh, kind of a new start here, a new kind of piece. For God has appointed another seed, small s seed, for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. And as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. Then men began to call, began to call on the name of the Lord. So before Seth and Enosh, apparently humans were struggling with calling on the name of the Lord. So we see Lamech repent, and we see this new group of people that actually start to worship God. So if Enoch was out building a city, and that city might have been Sumerians or something like that, clearly they weren't worshiping God, they were worshiping, worshiping the Nephilim. Um, but in this case, we see people that turn to the Lord and begin to worship the Lord again. Um, that it might have been through Abel, but Cain's line was then corrupt because of the murder. So now we're going to turn around and follow this other son named Seth. Oh, I screwed that or moved that around. Is that the end of the chapter? Whoa. That went really fast, didn't it? I think, well, going back to the Sumerian stuff, part of the stuff that's cool about the Sumerians is it wasn't until 1849 that we found these 14 tablets that have just all of these accounts and stories and everything that's there. Um, and these records. Most of our Sumerian knowledge came from stuff that came from those other libraries. So I think it's kind of cool as we get into our era that some of these things are being unpacked and discovered that really point their way or add validity to some of these other pieces. So I hope you all think that's cool. Last final thought on verses 3 and 4. And again, these are tough chapters to read because we're reading about sin. But I think one of the things, as I read through this and kind of focused and focused on this over the last week, is just this idea of how important it is that we repent. And that we see that Adam and Eve couldn't do that, that Cain couldn't do that, and then finally we see this Lamech that says, I, you know, I've, I've done wrong, right? I have a question about that. Yeah? Is he saying that he did wrong, or is he bragging about the fact that if Cain's revenge is... 77 or the 77-fold thing, then it's going to be even greater if someone kills me. <laughs> oh, because if Cain's avenged 70-fold, then Lamech shall be 77-fold. Yeah. I still think it's a curse for Lamech because he says, I have killed a man for wounding me. I wonder if he's bragging about that. He was also the first person to engage in bigamy, so that's why... I that could very well be the case, and I don't think that would be... That's an alternative reading of mine, but I don't think it's a bad reading at all. Yeah, that could be. Which would add validity to saying, and Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son named Seth. It's like, okay, we're just going to start over. Because this whole line of Cain ends with Lamech, and it's kind of a bad thing. I actually like that better. That's a nice reading, Levi. So yeah, that's, 
this line of the family of Cain is a failed family and it doesn't work and it's broken and there's something that's gone wrong with that family. For God's appointed another and we're moving forward with Seth and that's where we'll see the family of Adam is in chapter 5 and we'll pick up with that. And we're going to go straight from Adam to Noah, right? Yep. So we'll get there. That was a lot of stuff. All right. What do you think? Other than Levi just nailing that. It blows me his way. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.